and welcome to Standard Precautions and Beyond, Conversations in Infection Prevention and Control, a podcast for the Alabama Regional Center for Infection Prevention and Control Training and Technical Assistance, or ARC-IPC. My name is Mina Nabavi, and I'm a program manager in the ARC-IPC at the UAB School of Public Health. The ARC-IPC was established to meet the consultation and support service needs surrounding infection prevention and control throughout the state of Alabama. The center is a collaborative effort of the Alabama Department of Public Health's Infectious Disease and Outbreaks Division and the University of Alabama at Birmingham. The ARC-IPC provides training and technical assistance to infection prevention and control and public health professionals in areas needed to detect, respond to, control, and prevent infectious disease outbreaks. So today we are joined by Dr. David Kimberlin. Dr. Kimberlin is a professor and co-director of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And we have invited Dr. Kimberlin to record a podcast for our center to discuss COVID-19 in pediatric patients, how to keep children safe from the Delta variant, and to answer questions about COVID-19 vaccines for children. So thank you so much, Dr. Kimberlin, for being here today. I know this past year and a half has been extremely difficult and stressful to those in the healthcare setting, so I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. So, you know, recently we have heard a lot about children's hospitals being overrun with patients. And so just jumping right in, what is different about this Delta variant that is contributing to this surge in children? Well, I think we have two things going on. One is, as your question is getting at, what's different about the virus? The Delta variant is hyper-transmissible, hyper-transmissible. It is you know, many, many fold more transmissible than the earlier versions of the virus. And and not only that, but once you get it, it goes very quickly to have very high amounts of virus in your nose. And that's whether you're vaccinated or not. The same thing happens in both of those populations with 1,000 fold more virus with the Delta variant in your nose if you're infected with it than was the case if you were infected with an earlier version of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes this COVID pandemic. So that's one one aspect of it. The, the virus has changed. We're dealing with a different enemy now than we were several months ago, than we were a year ago, than we were a year and a half ago. The other thing is that not enough people have been vaccinated. Uh, you know that that that's we can we can we can blame the virus, and and to some extent we should blame the virus, but we also need to blame ourselves. We we are the ones who have the power to end this. And yet too many of our, uh, of our fellow Alabamians don't exercise that power. They, they, they seem to not want to be vaccinated. And that is contributing undoubtedly, undoubtedly to the ongoing pandemic, the ongoing deaths that we have. More than 100 Alabamians dying every single day. More than 100 dying every single day as of September 22nd, 2021 of the Delta variant of uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus causing the COVID pandemic. So you mentioned we're dealing with a highly transmissible uh, virus. How likely are children to catch and transmit this virus in school settings? And I want you to, if you could talk about some of the important measures to prevent the spread of the infection in schools. It's a very good question. 
Um, and, and of course, we're learning more. We always are learning more uh, about, about the virus and about the transmission of the virus, and including now the, the new variants, Delta being the primary variant that we're, we're facing at this particular time. I want to start by saying that everyone, everyone, parents, educators, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society, the list goes on and on. Everyone agrees that children need to be in school in-person learning. Uh, we experienced in the spring of 2020 and then throughout the 2020-2021 school year, uh, the detriments of doing remote learning. I mean, it, it is pretty remarkable what was accomplished, what was achieved um, by going virtual, that we could do it at all was pretty remarkable, but it's just not as good as being in person. It's not as good educationally. It's not as good socially. It's not as good uh, nutritionally for, for those uh, students who are on meals uh, at schools. It's not as good um, just overall from the standpoint of child health, mental health and physical health. And so we need to be in schools. Now, now in order to, to do that, though, we need to stay in schools. It, it doesn't do much good to, to start schools and then as happened over and over and over and over and over again in August of this year, have to shut them down within a week. You know, that, that doesn't do us much good. Um, and, and, and we, we will, uh, <laughs> I mean, cause, cause that seems to be what we do. Um, we will, um, we will make that mistake over and over again. I think that the numbers from August and moving into September speak for themselves in terms of the thousands of children that uh, were um, infected within, you know, literally one to two weeks of being in school and the many thousands more that were impacted by that because they were a, a contact to someone who had tested positive and therefore they had to stay away from school while they were um, you know, being quarantined and, and, and hopefully not actually coming down with the infection themselves. Now, what can we do to avoid that? Well, we can wear masks in school. You know, this, this is, as my son said in fifth grade, this is not rocket surgery. You know, this is, this is something we know how to do. We know what works. What we don't have completely or at least reliably is the willpower to do it. Um, school boards need to require masking in school for whether people are vaccinated or not. That's what the CDC says to do. That's what the American Academy of Pediatrics says to do. That's what the Infectious Diseases Society of America says to do. That's what the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society says to do. This is something that we need to do. And if we do it, we have a pretty good chance of staying in school. And if we don't, we'll have thousands of children getting infected within a week or two of the mask mandates going away or, or not being implemented in the first place. And then they'll stay out of school because they're infected. And then all their contacts will stay out of school because they've been exposed and they have to quarantine. This will just go on and on. We've seen the movie before. We know how it ends. So let's not play the same movie again. Let's do it different. Let's require masking in school. That's what we have to do. So can you talk briefly about, you know, how do we assess risk and make safe decisions for children who cannot mask? Can you talk about that? Well, virtually all children can mask. Um, uh, under two years of age would not be a good idea because the masks aren't small enough. They fit, you know, over too much of the face and, and you got to be able to see the child and they're not, vo they're not verbal, reliably verbal at that age to be able to say if they're having any kind of problems. And then there's some other um, you know, special needs children, for instance, neurologically impaired children um, that might not be able to coordinate their hand movements to get up and take a mask off if they're, you know, short of breath or if they're having any kind of difficulty. So there are some 
children um, that, that cannot mask, but it's few and far between. The vast majority of children can mask. And, you know, honestly, if you ask a parent who, who really doesn't have a bias in this, who really just asks open-ended questions of their children, how was your day today? You know, tell me, did you play with Johnny? Did you, what did you learn today? Oh, and how was the masking? What they're going to hear is children don't care about wearing a mask. That they, They're fine with it. And so I, I think that you know, there are those rare children who cannot, and, and, and what we should do in those situations is protect them by wearing masks around them, which would be the case if everybody universally in a school setting, in an indoor school setting, uh, masks, whether vaccinated or not, which again is following CDC recommendations for anyone, any of us within any indoor setting. You know, I'm, none of us like to wear masks, but we've been doing it for the past 18, 19 months. So I appreciate you reiterating, you know, that if we if we don't, this cycle just continues on. You'd have to be kind of like comatose for the last 19 or 20 months to, to not see the patterns here. The patterns are pretty clear. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Right. So I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and, you know, talk about, you know, how do parents or caregivers know if what a child has is the cold, the flu, or COVID-19. And, you know, as you said, this is especially important as children are going back to school, getting back into these classrooms and into settings, plus the onset of, you know, peak allergy season in Alabama, plus the flu um, season. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, many of the symptoms really do overlap. And I want to I transport us back in time, if I could, back to February and March and April of 2020. So that was, you know, I'm talking a year and a half ago. Remember what, what, what the struggles were then about testing and about lack of testing and the, and the you know, stumbling out of the blocks, if you will, um, from CDC on developing tests that could be widely implemented and widely available. And what that did for us back in those early days of the pandemic is blind us to where the enemy was. We could not see the, the, the battlefield because we didn't have testing capacity. What we do now, and, and, and we have for, for you know well over a year, what we need to do is when a child or an adult either, but in this example, this question, we're talking about children, when they develop symptoms, primarily symptoms of an upper respiratory tract infection, uh, you know, if you have the, the loss of taste and smell, then that, that's pretty suggestive. It's not pathognomonic, but it's pretty suggestive of a COVID infection. But you also can have congestion, you can have a cough, you can have a sore throat, you can have a headache, you know, things that could be a lot of different stuff. In those situations, we need to utilize the testing capacity that we have. We have to be able to look for COVID and we have to, you know, actually use that capacity to look for COVID to be able to identify who has it. And, and importantly as well, who doesn't have it, you know, who has a, a regular rhinovirus infection or who has, you know, an influenza virus infection or a parainfluenza virus infection or whatever it may be. We've got to know that, and the way we know it is by testing. And the way we do testing is when a child develops symptoms that are not typical for their seasonal allergies, that are not, um, or I should say, that are suggestive of some sort of upper respiratory infection, that the, the parents take the child to the pediatrician's office, ideally, or to a testing site, or, or use a home kit. Uh, you can buy it in, you know, in homes that are a bit expensive. Um, hopefully that'll be coming down. But, uh, you know, do some sort of testing to see if your child has COVID. That's the way we're going to then be able uh, 
to have a better chance of containing the spread of this hypertransmissible Delta variant. So can you talk a bit about um, long-term effects on lung function for kids who get COVID-19? What information is, is known about that? The short answer is not much, um, but I'm going to expand the question out to include not just lung function, but cardiac function, kidney function, uh, brain function, um, uh, overall energy levels. I mean, just think about all the different aspects of the so-called long COVID, uh, which you know we, we are seeing more and more reported. Uh, one study out of China recently, I think in Nature or Science, one of the two, um, showed that you know virtually half, 49% of overwhelmingly adults in that particular study, one year after having COVID still had one or more symptoms. You know, 49% after one year, presumably large percentages as well of children having the same, and, and some of the studies are supporting that. Um, but what that trajectory really looks like and, and what the kinetics of it are, in other words, how, how likely is it to happen and what are, the, what are the timelines to resolution is something that really is not well described now. And, and to some extent, that's simply because we're only 19 months into this, you know, or 20 months into this. This is a, um, if, if we're going to be looking for what happens over three and five years, we haven't been at this with this virus for three or five years. The NIH has just launched or is in the process of launching a very large study called the Recover Study. I'm actually on their um, oversight monitoring board, uh, and we had our first um, organiz organizational meeting yesterday about it. Uh, to, to do this very thing, they're going to be tracking 40,000 Americans, half of them children, uh, over time and seeing exactly what kind of outcomes there are that will ultimately be able to answer the question that you asked. So even though the, the symptoms may be similar to the cold or the flu, um, it's still unknown what those, those long-term impacts may be. I think it's true. I mean, I think we know broadly speaking what, the, what they can look like, brain fog, um, exercise intolerance, you know, either because of lung function or cardiac function, increasingly recognized um, impacts on the kidneys. I mean, we know kind of broadly speaking what parts of the body can be affected, but how often it happens and, and what for someone who's undergoing that, what their future looks like, you know, saying that within X number of months, Y percentage of patients are better, you know, that those kinds of X's and Y's are what we have to uh, have to really define now. So what should parents do if they test positive for COVID-19 and they are the primary caregiver for um, a child? What, what's your advice for them? I'm going to back it a little bit prior to that and say that prior to getting infected, they should have been vaccinated. Um, that's the main way that we protect ourselves and our loved ones. Um, by If you're 12 or over right now, 12 or over, get vaccinated. Um, now, yeah, let's assume that a parent uh, did the right thing, got vaccinated, still became infected, mildly infected because the mom or the dad has been vaccinated and therefore is highly protected against moderate to severe disease, against hospitalization and against their own death from COVID. Um, and yet they're taking care of a child under 12 years of age in the household. That's a common situation um, because we have so much virus in the community and have had it uh, uh, at very high levels in the community for the last couple of months, almost. Uh, and what they you know, best can do in that situation is mask when they're inside 
and to the extent possible separate from the apparently uninfected family members in the household. That's easier to do, for instance, if you have two parents in the house and one's infected and symptomatic and the other is, is not infected. Um, the one who's symptomatic can, you know, kind of withdraw to the bedroom, hopefully, and, and the other parent steps up and, and helps take care of, of running the household. Harder to do with, obviously, with a single parent family. Um, but, but to the extent possible, I think definitely mask inside and to the extent possible, try to distance and isolate uh, oneself as best they can. And I do realize it is much easier for me to say those words than it is to actually implement them in a household. I understand that. So you have stressed vaccines a lot so far. And so I, you know, that's the next set of questions that I have for you. So I know recently Pfizer's CEO said that the COVID-19 vaccine could be authorized by the Food and Drug Administration for children under the age of 12 as early as this fall, and that's fall 2021. So can you, what does the vaccine approval process look like from the clinical trials to FDA approval? That's a very good question, and I think it's one that, that we need to be, be very precise with our language. Um, with this pandemic and with the COVID vaccines, um, the FDA has utilized its emergency use authorization powers, EUA powers, to authorize vaccines, COVID vaccines, in certain age populations. And then following that, as additional longer-term follow-up data are available, um, they then can consider a vaccine in a certain age population for full approval. So authorization for the COVID vaccines, authorization has come first and approval comes second. Now, the Pfizer vaccine is the one that's been farthest along. And so let me use that as an example. The Pfizer vaccine initially, I think this was like uh, back in December of 2020, was authorized for persons 16 and above. It was authorized for 16 and above. And then in May, the authorization was extended for 12 through 15-year-olds. So for a brief period of time, we had uh, the Pfizer vaccine authorized for 12 and above. Well, Pfizer now has been approved for 16 and over. So now we have Pfizer authorized for 12 through 15 and approved for 16 and older. And I want to just briefly explain what the difference is. Pfizer and all the other vaccine manufacturers that have done COVID studies so far have conducted very large studies, you know, 40, 45,000 subjects in those studies. And for the last subject of those 45,000, the last subject enrolled followed for two months, at least two months, um, was required for authorization. For approval, that last subject enrolled had to be followed for six months. And so that's what, you know, the, 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 the benefit is well-defined, you know, by the time you get to two months. The only difference is the follow-up, two months for authorization, six months for approval. And of course, by the time the last subject's been followed for six months, the first subject's been in followed for, I'm going to make this up, 11 months, for instance, to say. So, so that's the difference between authorization and approval. So what's on the table now, or what will be on the table very soon, I guess is the better way to say that, 
is whether the authorization should be extended for the five through 11 year olds. And what Pfizer has done is completed, uh, you know, a pretty large study of several thousand children um, who are five through 11 years of age. They're getting a dose of the vaccine, of the Pfizer vaccine, that is one third of the dose that has been either authorized in 12 through 15 year olds or approved for 16 and over, one third of that dose. And they're being followed for at least two months because this is an authorization. And what Pfizer announced very recently in a press release was that the, um, the data looked good in terms of immunogenicity, how strong the immune response was in those five through 11 year olds compared with presumably 12 through 15 and 16 and over, uh, or at least 16 to 25 as an example. Um, but, but the important point here is that this is a press release and, and science by press release is not the best way to do things. I understand in a pandemic, very rapidly changing situations, press releases have a role and, and it's a, but, but at best it's a foretaste of what the data show. And Pfizer will be submitting these data to the FDA and then FDA is gonna get their, you know, arms deep into the data to see if they can replicate what the positive um, announcement from Pfizer actually was. It will only be, it will only be if the, if the scientists at the, at the FDA and the scientists at the CDC and the advisory committees for each, the external advisory committees for each, if they say that it's okay, that's the only time we'll get to an authorization for five through 11 year olds. And I would suggest that's exactly the way we want it. We want this to be a data-driven, science-driven process. So I apologize for such a long answer to an excellent question, but I really wanted to walk our, our listeners through that because I think it's very important. I appreciate that explanation. So as potentially as parents or caregivers may have the opportunity or children may have the opportunity in the future for their, their child to get um, the vaccine that has been authorized by the FDA, you know, they may have some questions, you know, so can this vaccine or does it affect puberty or fertility in children? No. Okay. What about for children with severe allergies? Can they get the vaccine? Yes, unless the allergy is to a component of the vaccine. Um, and uh, that means the overwhelming of uh, uh, majority of children with, you know, uh, peanut allergy, for example, uh, other food allergies and so forth, they can be safely vaccinated as has been the case for uh, the older adolescents and the adults. And I'm answering these questions, assuming that the data do not, the data for the five through 11 year olds don't show something different. And, and as I said before, we've not seen those data yet, but by the time a true authorization comes out, we will have seen those data. So I'm presuming that the data won't show anything different compared with what was seen in the 12 and over uh, age groups. So if a child has had COVID-19, is it safe for them to get the vaccine? And do you think that there would be a waiting period um, before they get the vaccine if they've recently had COVID-19? Is that similar um, as with adults? Well, now with adults and, and, and with adolescents, people getting the full dose, in other words, the dose that's authorized for 12 through 15 and approved for 16 and over of Pfizer, um, w w there is no delay. There is no separation in time between 
uh, when they recover from COVID and when they can and should get the vaccine. The, the vaccine-induced immunity is broader, it's deeper, and it's more long-lasting than the immunity induced from having the disease itself. It's better, in other words. The vaccine induces better immunity than does the disease itself. And that's, that's pretty miraculous. Uh, the reason there initially, going back to the spring of 2021, uh, that there was an, uh, initially a recommendation for people who had gotten over COVID to wait 90 days, it was not related to any safety issues. Um, it rather was related to the fact that we didn't have enough vaccine. And so we were saying, all right, we got a limited supply. How do we make that limited supply go farther? And the way to do it, judgment back then was, and I agree with that judgment, was to say, well, if someone's gotten over COVID, they probably have decent immunity for 90 days. And so let's give it to people who've not had COVID. Well, now that we have surplus vaccine for 12 and over, the full dose vaccine, there's no, there's no need for a delay. So I think for the five through 11 year olds, it's going to probably come down to the same thing. I've already told, uh, told the listeners that the dose for five through 11 year olds that's been studied and presumably will be authorized is one third of the dose of the, the what's given to 12 and over. This is not saying that you simply draw a third of the volume out of a vial. This is gonna be a different packaged entity. Um, it will be prepared at the manufacturer differently, packaged differently, shipped differently, stored differently in terms of you know where it is in the freezers and so forth. Uh, and so if that supply is limited, I certainly could see there might be such a recommendation to wait uh, if someone's recently had COVID. On the other hand, if supplies are robust and, and voluminous, then there would not be. And to follow up on that kind of waiting question, could children potentially get the COVID-19 vaccine along with other vaccines that they would normally get at their well checkup at a pediatrician's? Or would there be a waiting period for that? There is no waiting period between getting the COVID vaccine and getting any other indicated vaccine. Um, CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics, I think in May, if I remember correctly, um, uh, uh, voted on that, made that determination, and it would, it would hold true as well for the 5 through 11-year-olds uh, when they have an authorized vaccine that they can receive as well. If it's time for their flu shot and COVID shot, give them both. If it's time for their you know, um, well, let's see, five through 11, it, you know, let's say they're, they're uh, TDAP um, uh, and, uh, and also their COVID vaccine, give them both. I know we're, we're nearing the, the time that we've allotted for this podcast. So I want to see, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? Just a plea, I beg you, um, if you're not vaccinated and you're 12 and over, get vaccinated now. If when you're listening to this, we already have authorization for five through 11 years of age, and you have a five through 11 year old, get her or him vaccinated. Um, this is life and death. Uh, I've been on service these last couple of weeks at Children's Hospital, uh, Children's of Alabama, and, and I, this is devastating these children. And, and many of them are adolescents who are of an age where they could be vaccinated already, you know, even without the five through 11 authorization. Some of them are on, you know, BiPAP. They have those big old devices strapped to their face. 
Many are intubated. Some are on heart-lung bypass ECMO machines. This is life or death. And, and that's not even taking into account the, you know, many more children who have mild infection and are going to get over it themselves, but are spreading it to grandparents or to a dad who has cancer and is on chemotherapy or whatever it may be, and having that collateral damage and, and deaths of, of other people that are contacts um, of someone who's infected. We have got to come together. We have got to come together and stop the arguing and stop the finger pointing and stop the, the bickering about masks inside. We have got to get vaccinated if you're in a group that is of an age to be able to be vaccinated. And we have got to wear masks inside whether we're vaccinated or not. We've just got to do that. And I would beg people to listen to that to those words and to, to carry them forward in your own lives. And when you go into the grocery store, if people aren't masked, go up to the manager and say, I really, and assuming they don't have a sign already on the front of the, 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 the grocery store, say, I really would be more comfortable if you would put a sign on the door um, saying that everyone coming in needs to be masked. You know, that, that will listen, parents and, and, and adults, we have power, we can, we can make a difference. And I implore people to recognize that power. Don't be rude about it. Don't be hateful. Be loving. But say what your mind is and say how you want to be, you want to protect your children and you and what you would feel most comfortable with. And over time, enough of those, you know, normal voices will drown out the loud, angry voices uh, that are saying, let's just go about our lives. And as a process, more than 100 Alabamians are dying every single day. Uh, currently uh, from this pandemic. Dr. Kimberlin, that's a that's a great message to end with. So encouraging. I want to also encourage all of our listeners, when you have the opportunity, go and get vaccinated and wear your mask. Dr. Kimberlin, thank you again for being here today and taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with me. This has been an extremely informative talk for me and for our listeners as well. So I appreciate it very much. Well, I thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts. And thank you for listening. Please tune in next time for another episode from Standard Precautions and Beyond, Conversations in Infection Prevention and Control.